We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, let's turn our Bibles to Second Chronicles, please. And we'll carry on with the reading that we uh, have begun some time ago. Whoops, I lost my spot already here. Second Chronicles, and actually we should be in 29, shouldn't we? I think my bookmark has gotten mis- misplaced here because, yeah, well, I think that's what we're going to go with. 29, Hezekiah became king, and um, let's see what the text of Scripture tells us about Hezekiah. He became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Ahaz didn't do what was right. Jotham did. So we're kind of, uh, Uzziah sort of did as well, bouncing back and forth here. Verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity." Hezekiah seems to be kind of a smart fellow, but then again, I I wonder how smart you have to be to figure that out. Uh, The Lord promised it in the Old Testament uh, many times and years and years before, but he was right. And he says in verse 11, um, no, verse 10, sorry, now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now. For the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. Then these Levites arose, Mahath the son of Amasai, and Joel the son of Azariah, the sons of the Kohathites, of the sons of Merari, Kish the son of Abdi, and Azariah the son of Jehalel, of the Gershonites, Joah the son of Zimah, and Eden the son of Joah the sons of Elizaphan, Shimri, and Jeiel, of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mataniah, of the sons of Heman, Jehiel, and Shimei, and of the sons of Jeduthun, Shemaiah, and Uziel. And they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king 
at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris that they had found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron. Now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. Then they went into King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings with all its articles, and the tables of the showbread with all its articles. Moreover, the, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified, and there they are before the altar of the Lord. So 16 days of work that that took. Then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. Then he commanded the priests, sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bulls and the priests, received the blood, and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. They also killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests killed them, and they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all Israel. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshiped, the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshiped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshiped. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. And the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. All these were for a burnt offering to the Lord." They consecrate, sorry, the consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few so that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore, their brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended and until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. Also, the burnt offerings were in abundance and the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. Second Chronicles 29. Well, that's quite interesting, isn't it? And uh, 
glad for Hezekiah to uh, be a godly man and be putting the people back on the right path. That's what uh, the power of a leader is, to be able to do that so that they don't continue to mess up uh, the way that they were doing uh, before. All right. At this time, we're going to turn our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, if you would please join me there. And we will begin again to look in chapter 24 and 25. We uh, saw the historical setting. Uh, We expressed gratitude that we can know uh, more than even the disciples knew because we are benefactors of more revelation. But uh, So we have that which they did not have. The beginning of the chapter, the uh, Lord tells them that the temple was going to be destroyed. That would be a shocking news to them, but it was indeed true and it did happen uh, within most of their lifetimes or near to their lifetimes or their natural lifetimes for sure. Um, but the Lord doesn't focus on the destruction of the temple. He uh, moves on to something more important. The disciples kind of get caught up a little bit in it and they say, well, when is this going to happen and what are the signs going to be of your coming? Um, and so they are looking a little forward to, you know, when the Lord is going to establish his kingdom. They might not uh, perceive it in a way that we do, although I think if they had been paying attention, they would have uh, at least understood that the Lord was uh, kind of prepping them that he was going to go away for a while, and then he was going to come back. Luke 19 makes that very clear. Um, And so they're wondering, when is he going to come and, and establish his throne and his kingdom over Uh, Israel. And it looks to me like what Jesus does is he answers their two questions. When uh, will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? And he starts with the signs. He starts with the almost signs. He moves on to the signs, the uh, kind of increasing signs as we get close to the end uh, of the age and of his coming. And those are so close, in fact, that if you see like in chapter 24, 15, the sign of the abomination of desolation comes about. That is right in the tribulation, and it's a very traumatic time for the nation of Israel. Um, And the Lord gives a number of other things that will occur uh, regarding the universal preaching of the gospel and, uh, and so on and so forth. And then he gives the sign. Remember what the sign is? The most important, the most kind of direct sign. It's not a, a sign of the time. It's not a, uh, you know, some arrangement of the, the constellations or something like that. This sign is, in fact, the coming itself of the Lord. It says in 29, sorry, 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, Then, here it is, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the the sign. The capstone sign is the Lord himself appearing uh, in the clouds, uh, 
kind of rushing into the uh, atmosphere of the world um, in his wake, the, the uh, stars, uh, the sun, and, and things are darkened, and the powers of heaven are shaken. Uh, we know there will be a great earthquake around the time of the end of the tribulation and so on. The heavenly bodies disturbed. The people of the earth mourn because they see him, and uh, you know, evidently they will recognize, uh-oh, there's nowhere for us to run now. We can't hide uh, from him, although in Revelation we are told that some do try to flee to the mountains and say, fall on us, hide us from the face of the, the Lamb, the wrath of God and of the Lamb. And, uh, and then we saw that the uh, angels gather the uh, people, uh, as he says, his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So there evidently during this tribulation will be some people who are elect, chosen, who will be saved although they will have a tough time of it, uh, no doubt. Now, new stuff here. Jesus answers the when question next. So their first question, he answers second. Start in chapter 24, verse 32. And I'll read through verse 36 for the moment. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already Uh, become tender and puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So also when you see these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Well, these may be new for uh, some of us. Uh, We dealt with some of these on Wednesday. Um, Fact is, nobody knows the day or the hour that the Lord is going to return. Um, but we know the general season of it. So we're very careful to say that the rapture can occur at any time without any signs preceding. But after that, there will be clear signs kind of showing the progression of events that will unfold uh, when the Lord comes back. Uh, But we didn't focus too much on those things, those signs or things. Uh, We certainly didn't look to the newspaper, so to speak, to the internet news to find the signs and say, oh boy, you know, it's getting close now. Um, We focused on the idea of being ready for the Lord's return. And that means a little slightly different for the people who are alive during the tribulation than it does for us today, but the principle is still much the same. We must be ready since uh, in the end everything's going to be dissolved. What kind of people ought we to be in all holy conduct and godliness, 2 Peter 3.11 Um, you know, we're not, you know, weirding out about all kinds of stuff in the news, but we are trying to be ready for the Lord. Um, people in Noah's day were not ready. We saw that they did not listen. They were rebellious, stubborn, did not hear the preaching of Noah, the preacher of righteousness. And they carried on with their eating and partying and marrying and giving in marriage and having children and grandchildren and worrying about all of those things. Of course, probably a lot of them farming and gathering their subsistence and so on. And the flood came and took them all away. Judgment. Sudden devastating judgment, we said, demands readiness. Um, Since the Lord's coming is unknown as to its timing, um, the Lord commends us the illustration of the thief If you knew a thief was coming, you'd be ready for him or you'd leave your house or call the police or whatever you do to get ready, but um, you would be ready. (laughs) That 
the suddenness, the unexpectedness, the, uh, the, the, the danger of it, the devastating judgment of it, all demand readiness. Um, and uh, then he gives the illustration of the faithful and evil servant. And uh, maybe I didn't address this one as much as uh, I could have the last time. Let me just read a little bit of it in 45, verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and an hour that he's not aware of. See, he will lose track of time and not be aware that his, uh, he's fallen totally off his uh, responsibilities. And it says, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we remain ready by serving the master as we are directed during his absence. Okay, so that's really, when I say to be ready and we have the illustrations of not being ready, here is one way to be ready. Yes? Yes, the question is. Uh huh. Okay, so um, we've seen events uh, occurring in the tribulation already. Remember the abomination of desolation. So we've set that, that kind of stake in the ground. We know that that's the midpoint of the tribulation, somewhere in the, you know, at the three and a half years before, three and a half years after it. We saw that in the book of Daniel as well before. Okay, so we've we talked about the, uh, tribulation. Then in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, it says the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So now we fast forwarded to the end of the tribulation by verse 29. Now, for those of you that couldn't hear, the question is, um, the questioner is getting mixed up in uh, the, the two who are in the field. One is taken, the other left. Two women, one's taken, the other left. When all this exactly occurs and who is taken and who is left? Okay, thank you for asking that question. I did touch on it last Wednesday, but I want to re-emphasize it again because it is very confusing at times and people have kind of made mistakes about this. So, um, so you have the end of the tribulation. The Son of Man is coming. Uh, he's going to gather his elect from the four winds. And then he says in uh, verse 36, of the day and the hour, no one knows. And the day or the hour is that day or hour when the sign of the Son of Man appears, the end of the tribulation. Okay. Um, As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So when he shows up, it's going to be like when we read this morning that God says to Noah, in seven days, it's going to start raining. But before that, of course, it was, you know, we didn't know that, not we, 
He didn't know the exact time it was going to start raining. But as far as the world was concerned, they had no clue. The rain just came, just dropped on them, you know, from below and from above. And so it's like that. The Son of Man's coming is like when the rains came and the flood came. They were doing all of their thing, not paying attention to the things of God. Noah entered the ark, and you know, before you know it, uh, the flood came and took them all away. Now, when it took them all away, key into that language, when it took them away, what did it do with them? What did it do with them? That's the flood. And what did God do with them through the flood? Well, taking them away is taking them away and judging them, killing them. They're, they are judged. So it says that the flood came, took these people away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So when the Son of Man comes, there's going to be a sudden cataclysmic action. And there are going to be ones who are saved and ones who are lost. Okay, Again, end of the tribulation. The Lord's second coming itself. Now, this is, remember, this is way after the rapture. The rapture has occurred at the beginning of the tribulation. The church has been removed from the earth. We're not at issue here. These are those who are alive during the tribulation. And so, in a similar way that the Noah situation was, so coming of the Son of Man will be. What's that going to look like? Well, he says, there's going to be two men in the field, one will be taken. And the other left. What do you suppose happens with the one that's taken? Now, some people have said, well, this is the rapture. But this is the end of the tribulation. It can't be the rapture. And because the people taken in the days of Noah were taken in judgment, I understand this man who is taken to be one taken in judgment the same way. Make sense? Okay, so he's taken in judgment. The two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, this taken business has got to be kind of expanded upon, and we will do that in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, in which we'll learn that the, there's a sorting function that goes on, sheep and goats, and the, the, the ones who remain are welcomed into the kingdom by Jesus. Come you, you know, blessed of my Father, in the, into the kingdom. Uh, but the ones who are taken <clears throat> are taken out. They are removed. They are judged. They are not allowed to go into the kingdom. In Matthew 25, uh, verse uh, 30, <clears throat> well, let's see. Verse number uh, 41. He will say to those on his left hand, these are the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's the Noah situation is like when the Son of Man comes, but it's not the same because the Son of Man doesn't come with a flood that suddenly snuffs out people's lives. He comes and he gives a judgment. And there are people who are welcomed into the kingdom and people who are shut out and when they're shut out, where do they go? They go into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so we'll come to that kind of working out of the details, but 
This is the, to answer the question as directly as I can, this is at the end of the tribulation, right as the Lord Jesus returns. The taking is a taking in judgment. The remaining is a remaining for the blessing of the kingdom. And so the Lord tells us to watch and be ready because of this. Do you have a follow-up question to that? Or is that? No? Okay. John first and then, and then Jansen. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the question is, most people can count to seven. How is this an unknown? Um, first of all, the way I've answered that question is, assuming best play on the part of a reader of this text, they will understand seven years. Will they understand the day or the hour? They'll be able to understand the season, Jesus says so with the fig tree. When you see these things, you'll know that something's coming. But you're not going to know the day or the hour exactly. Now, is it exactly 365.25 times 7? I don't know. Now, that's, to me, as I'm just thinking of it now, John, is very optimistic because in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Exodus chapter 20 and 31, Follow me now. The Bible says that God created everything in six days. But there are a whole lot of people who can't count to six today. (laughs) They can't figure out that the Bible says what the Bible means, and the Bible means what the Bible says. And so, and plus, you're going to have a couple of other problems. Well, you have a couple of other problems. One is the unbelieving mind is not going to be paying attention to this. I mean, look, for example at the biblical illiteracy that our brother mentioned in his message this morning. Of course, you weren't here for that because you were teaching, but he talked about how uh, a huge percentage of students that he goes, was talking to in the apartment complex on North Campus know nothing about Jesus or anything. I mean, they don't know nothing, know-how about nothing. It's sad. And so you have biblical ignorance. Then... During the tribulation, I suspect that there is going to be a big push to get rid of the Bible by the Antichrist and all the forces that are with him. And so you'll have that information hidden from the populace. So yes, somebody who's paying attention, but for the most part, not going to be the case. So Jansen, I'm going to go to you next. And I like this interaction. This is good. Okay, so the question has to do with why is the Lord telling them to be ready if the rapture has already occurred and and these particular people are already gone? Is that a fair restatement of the question? The Lord is using this text to speak to the nation of Israel broadly, cross-temporally. He's not just speaking to the disciples. So as the Lord sometimes does, he will speak 
to a group of people as representatives of a larger group of people. So I think he's saying this so that when a Jewish person picks up this book, say during the tribulation, reads it and says, oh wow, I just saw the abomination of desolation. The Lord is telling me to be ready because he's coming. How am I going to be ready? They start flipping through the Bible and trying to find out, oh man, he was the Messiah. He preached the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I need to repent. I need to get saved. I need to be ready for when the Lord returns because I need to be on the right side judgment, not on the left side. I need to be in the sheep and not the goats. So I, that's how I've taken this, Jansen, that there is, uh, when he says, like, for example, in verse 34, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. He's thinking in his mind of, if not a future generation, then at least the whole of the organic, the organic whole of the nation that is going to be present, some of them to be present during that future age. And so they will have to be ready for the Lord's return. And we're using that, like he's saying this for people in the far future, or maybe not the too far future, depending on when the rapture occurs, the tribulation could be, you know, in this decade for that matter. Um, but he's, he's using that 2,000 years ahead of time or 3,000 years ahead of time as, an, as a way of instructing us, because remember Matthew is written to the church after the fact, uh, and, and his disciples at that time, that we need to be ready, and the principle still is the same today uh, as it was then, although it applied specifically during the, to the people in the tribulation at that time. So it's a little bit confusing, I would agree, but I think he's talking about the nation as a whole. Uh, for in, in a similar way as what the Lord speaks of the nation in Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 53, that's a future-looking uh, uh, prophecy of when the people of Israel, during the, I think at the very end of the tribulation and the early part of the kingdom perhaps, they're looking back on themselves and they're saying, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Now think of yourself, you're a Jewish person in or at the end of, or just after the end of the tribulation, and you're saying, oh, no. <laughs> we esteemed him smitten of God and afflicted. All we like sheep had gone astray, each one to his own way. And the Lord, 2,000 years ago, laid on him the iniquity of us all, us Jews. And they will have had, or will soon have, the experience in Zechariah chapter 14. They will look, or 12, they will look upon him whom they pierced, and they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. They will have had that experience, or soon will have it. And they will recognize, wow, God was pleased to make his soul an offering for sin, and we esteemed him as nothing. We, he had no form or comeliness. We did not desire him. And yet the Lord gave him a portion with the great, and he divided the spoil with the strong. So there are many passages of Scripture in which the prophet, and here is a prophecy, is looking forward to a time when the nation of Israel will be looking back on a time. Or they will be in the middle of the time and they will need to be warned to be ready. 
we believe that there is no new revelation coming in this age, nor is there a new revelation uh, coming during the tribulation uh, time, as far as we know. And so this is going to have to suffice to tell the Jews and Gentiles what they need to do during that time of world history. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Out of context. Yes. Yes. Again, if if you were memorizing it thinking that this the abomination of desolation and the coming of Christ in the clouds was going to be your experience possibly, and that you had to be ready for that, it was a little bit what we call anachronistic. It was out of the proper sequence of events, the proper time. But again, I don't want to be too harsh on those who have used these verses that way, perhaps mistakenly so, without knowing it, um, because the principles still apply to us just as well as they will to those people in the future. We need to be ready. Now, we need to be ready for an event that was not really revealed here yet. It was revealed in John 14 in a kind of nascent form. It was revealed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture. It hadn't been laid out here. This was Jewish-centered. It's centered on on God's work with the nation and so on. And so the principle is still good. You be ready, even if the timing is off, okay, for us, for us. Now, there are certain people who believe that the tribulation happens and all Christians go through it, and we're raptured at the end of the tribulation. Now, how that exactly works doesn't make sense to me. Um, You know, you're raptured at the end of the tribulation, and you go up, and you just come right on back down with the Lord and rule with Him for a thousand years without any delay in between. It just doesn't seem to jive, if I can say it that way. That's not a theological term, as you know, but uh, it doesn't seem to fit. So it, it seems better that we're going to be saved from the hour of tribulation, as First Thessalonians 5 says. We're not appointed to wrath. First Thessalonians points that out a number of times. It will be taken out of the earth. The church is not mentioned in Revelation 6 through 19, and there are other arguments that support uh, the rapture. So I... I uh, was dismayed to hear R.C. Sproul one time talk about how he spoke with a pastor friend. Where do you get the rapture from? And the guy was like, well, I don't really know. We just believe it. Well, come on. You know, either, either believe it or don't believe it. Come up with some reasons for it. But I mean, open the, you know, Sproul is sitting across the table from me. I'm going to say, listen, R.C., if I can be so frank and familiar with you, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's look at the fact that the church is not in, in uh, Revelation 6 through 19. You don't see them there at all. Um, but, of course, he's not going to agree because he, you know, takes the church to have been present from Adam forward. 
any people of God are church. And so they just look at it entirely differently. Uh, we're interpreting this in accordance with our doctrinal statement and the beliefs that we've come to uh, embrace by careful study of the scriptures. Um, so I hope I've answered all the questions. We certainly, hopefully, unraveled the first question about pe people being taken and left, taken in judgment, not taken in rapture. This is totally not the right time for the rapture uh, issue to be uh, a concern for us. All right, so how do we be, we go, come back to the question, therefore you also be ready, as our sister indicated, that the verse that she had memorized as a young person in chapter 24, 44, you be ready. Well, how are you going to be ready? Well, again, principle applies to us as well as to anyone in any age. Be ready, first of all, by serving the master as we are directed to do during his absence. So you have the wise servant and you have the... the the stupid servant, okay? The wise one, he does what he's supposed to be doing and the master comes and finds him and, and uh, wow, super. You know, the master's very happy as, he, as you would expect and he, he basically says, well done, good and faithful servant and all of that and uh, he will make him ruler over all his goods. But on the other hand, if, you know, the stupid servant uh, gets distracted, he pleases himself, he abuses others, he forgets his master's coming, he shows himself unfaithful and, and, and worthy of judgment, and that's what he gets. So if you want to be ready for the Lord, you take what he's told you to do and just do it. Just do it. You don't have to, you know, complain about it, grumble about it, uh, you know, why should I have to do this and all that sort of stuff, or, or, or just even worse, ignore it and go and do your own thing. Just be ready by give, doing the assigned work. Now, we could stop and think about that. What, what is the assigned work for us? What does God want us to do? Well, I think some of us don't know. Well, we're supposed to go to church. We're supposed to pray, read our Bible. Uh, big picture items. We're supposed to be growing the church. Great commission. We're supposed to love God, love our neighbor. Great commandment. We're supposed to do everything to honor God. Uh, we're supposed to sacrificially support the work of God. Uh, we're supposed to be doing the work of God ourselves, you know, not just assigning it to the paid, you know, hired guns, so to speak, to do all the work. Um, all of that. We, we can sit and, and think about our assignment list, and, and we don't have any excuse. He's told us what to do and to be ready. Secondly, we'd be ready by being prepared for His coming despite a potentially long delay. And that's in chapter 25 with the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. I don't think I need to read this whole por portion, but if you haven't read it in a while, maybe you should do that. You have uh, some virgins, five of them were wise, five were foolish. They were to come to this uh, wedding, which was like the kingdom of heaven. And uh, the wise had their supplies. They were ready to wait. You know, they had their, their, uh, their batter, extra battery packs, their flashlights, you know, they're all good. This is lanterns and oil and all that, but to make it up to date, we could say they had all their equipment, they had done their prepping, and uh, don't take that now and run with it, um, and there they were. The five foolish ones just, you know, kind of went out with no concern or care for when the bridegroom was coming and uh, they didn't have the supplies that they needed. 
and they ended up being shut out because they had to go run and, and finish preparing. So you, to be prepared is to be prepared, is not to be unprepared. So, um, you know, we don't sell all of our goods and sit on a high mountain and wait for the Lord to return, you know, looking up to heaven. We have to plan and work and serve as if the time remaining is long because for many prior generations, that's what they had to do from their early, you know, teenage and early adult years all the way up to the time they were 70, 80, 90 years old and they couldn't work for God or in the world anymore. So... It may be a long time. We can plan and do so if God wills. Remember that? Don't just say today and tomorrow we'll go do this, do that, and we'll make a profit and so on. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. We read that in the Proverbs, didn't we? We don't know what a day will bring forth. But we have to plan and serve as if the time remaining is that way. Um, I find it interesting that both groups of young women were to be at the wedding, but only some were ready. A lot of people profess to be going to the wedding, but not everybody is going to the wedding. You know what I mean? They profess to be Christians, but they're not all that way, actually, in reality. Thirdly, we are not only ready by doing the assigned work, by being prepared for a potentially long delay, but also thirdly, we are ready by being faithful with the resources that God has given to us. And that is the parable of the talents, the next section of chapter 25. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. Okay, there's that far country thing again, who called to his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And he gave five talents, two talents, one talent, and turned to these guys, um, the five, the, you know, the five guy, he did a good job. The two guy did a good job. The one guy... He just was lazy. He just stuck it under in a little shallow grave, so to speak, and let it sit there. And um, when the, the Lord returned after a long time, he settled accounts. The guy who had received five talents of, of money came and brought ten. guy who had two initially uh, doubled uh, his, his investment as well, but then the last one came, and he hadn't done nothing. He had done nothing. He hadn't done anything with that which the master gave him. And the master was upset because he said, well, look, you could have given your talent to the banker and he could have given you at least a, you know, 0.1% interest or something like that. It's actually getting higher these days, friends. But, uh, you know, he could have given, they could have given you something for the use of the money. So the lesson is that the resources that God gives us to serve him, we need to use them for him. That may be money, but that could be any number of other things. Um, I know that the passage teaches about the talents, and the talents are financial resource, but I have extracted from this always in my teaching over the years that we're not just talking about finances. You know, this, this is a great verse to preach if you're preaching on giving, you know, and you give it to the church and tell them, you know, you've got to give all your money and blah, blah, blah. That's not the only point that the Lord is making. I think these talents represent anything that God has given to you that you can use to serve Him. That may be your brains. You have intellectual horsepower. That could be your finances, your ability to earn wealth, your ability to, you have a good physical 
body. You can work hard. You can earn money that way, especially when you're you know, a young person or you're in some field of unskilled labor or skilled labor and you've learned some skill. You can use that to serve God. You can use your mouth. Uh, remember Moses can't speak? He thought. God said, who made man's mouth? Buster? Who made it? Who made the seeing and the, and the blind and the hearing and the deaf and all? God did. He can use your mouth. That's a powerful verse, one that God used in my own life to help me to use my mouth for the Lord. So whatever you have, use in faithful service to God, and you know that you will be evaluated for that. You might say, well, Lord, you didn't give me five talents or two talents or one talent. Yeah, but I gave you a mouth, and I gave you a brain. I gave you intellect. I gave you, you know, whatever. I gave you the family that you grew up in, all that benefit. And what did you do with it? Did you blow it, or did you use it? So be ready by being faithful with what the Lord has given. Be ready by being prepared even for a long delay. Be ready by carrying out the instructions that the master gives during that delay. Now let me just emphasize, it is most dangerous to be in a state of unreadiness. Most dangerous. To be unfaithful is dangerous. To be serving self, to be unprepared for a long delay in the Lord's return. Can I just say that again? It is dangerous for you to blow off God. It is highly, I mean, it's more than dangerous. It's a certainty that it's danger. It's not like, you know, there are chances that something could go wrong if you ignore God or blow Him off. There's not chances of that. There's certainty of that. For us as a church and as individuals, I fear that there is far too much of the world in the church. In our church? Is there too much of an emphasis on the world in our lives and too little emphasis on God and others? Is that what our life looks like? Is that how ready we are? I mean, how unready we are, very, very dangerous to be not ready, to be unprepared for the Lord's return, for the Lord's rapture in our case specifically, which is a phase of His return. But in any case, um, I hope that you know, kind of stirs your soul as it has mine. I, you know, look, I like enjoying the gifts that God gives to us. But there is nothing that drives, uh, how can I say it? There's nothing more important that could drive our lives, and I feel that drives mine, than doing what I can now with the strength that I have to serve God. Whether that's in helping Bible translation or helping another mission agency or working in this church or giving the Word of God, I have a, I have a job to do, and I'm working at doing it. Imperfectly, I'm sure. But uh, I don't want to be found lazy and unfaithful and unprepared. And of course, I don't know if I'm perfectly prepared and perfectly unlazy, if I can say it that way, and all of that. But I know that that's my desire to serve God and not to uh, 
you know, just say, well, enjoy your gifts, God, but, uh, you know, see you at the end of life. No, that's not, that's not the attitude. I mean, obviously, we understand we're not saved by doing good. And people say, oh, you're being legalistic and take it easy and all that. Take it easy. With these statements? How can you do that? Pardon me, but this doesn't sound like take it easy. This sounds like serve God. Don't be the guy that's beating the servants and taking your ease and drinking and eating and being merry while all this stuff is going on and then say, whoa, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, act surprised or something. No, we have, we have ministry to do and we best be doing it. We understand we're saved by grace and we understand serving God is a grace as well and I am thankful for it. Judgment on the Gentiles then in chapter um, 25 31 to 46, and the Lord doesn't specifically focus on judgment on the Jews, although I think he leaves that uh, out because it's cared for well enough in Ezekiel chapter 20. There's a mention there of God's specific judgment of the Jewish nation, but he focuses on the other nations of the earth in chapter uh, 30, uh, sorry, chapter 25, verse 31. And uh, this passage, again, also is very often misunderstood because of a lack of contextual understanding of it. I remember back in probably 1996, I was going to the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship during the summer. I was just searching for some Christian fellowship and some teaching of the Word, and, and uh, I was on campus, uh, finished up my bachelor's degree and was working on the master's and Ph.D. at that time, and maybe it was 96, 7, 98. And I would go to these gatherings and trying to find other Christians and learning the scriptures and stuff. And one night they went over this passage and made no mention of the context of it. It was just like jump right in, you know, parachute in, land on verse 31, sheep and goats, and oh my goodness, are you a sheep or are you a goat? And, you know, you start thinking about this, and boy, then you look at what does it take to be a sheep or to be a goat? And you can get all confused about this. This doesn't have anything to do with the church, my friends. Okay? Follow me. The Bible says that the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them. This is verse 32. From one another... Uh, one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep nations, that is, on his right hand, and the goats, those nations, those people of those nations on the left hand. Remember, the Bible talks about the Jews, the Gentiles, and what? The church, okay? We are, and, and and the Gentiles, by the way, the goyim are the nations, very common Old Testament language, Old Testament language. Here's the Lord Jesus using it. He's using it because it's good language too for the New Testament. So he's talking about the nations. He's not talking about the Jews, and he's not talking about the church. So that ought to settle that for us. Of course, I understand there are more nuances that people want to go through and all of that, but this is the nations. And we know it's the nations in with respect to the Jews, because notice what he says. The king will say to those on his right hand, verse 34, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. 
prepared for you from before the foundation or from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The Lord is talking about things that happened during the tribulation, that time period that just was ended. Uh, and the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, my interpretation of that is these are Jewish brethren, my people. Then you did it to me. This is like Jesus has a solidarity with the church. How do you know that? Well, think of road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, was Saul persecuting Jesus? Well, yes, he was, but he was doing it through persecuting the church. So he wasn't directly attacking Jesus himself, but Jesus sees himself as, because he is the head of the body, that's an attack on him. Similarly, he's saying here, you people, you nations that blessed the Jewish brothers of mine, blessed me. You see that? Same exact thing. The solidarity that the Lord has with the brethren uh, of the Lord. Now, remember, we're talking Jews or Gentiles, rather, on the one hand, and my brethren. Well, who could that be? Well, it's not the Gentile nations. It seems like it's got to be the Jewish nation. That's what he means by brethren. Now, again, I know some people say, well, brethren, that means Christians. I think that's oversimplistic based on the context. Then he says to those on the left, you know, leave, go to the, go to the lake of fire. Why, they say? Well, because you didn't care for me. Uh, you didn't, you, you didn't uh, help the least of these, my brothers, and so you did not do it to me. And then they went into everlasting punishment. But the righteous went into everlasting life. So this happens after the Lord comes in glory. Okay, That's the timeline after the second coming. He's on the earth. He sets up his throne in verse number uh, 31 in Jerusalem. Now, and I believe that when he talks about sheep and goats, he's talking about individuals who are members of those nations that he's taken. So in other words, a sheep, or how can I say it? Maybe I'll say a goat. If you were to take one of those, you know, all those gathered nations there and say one goat, you could say, well, maybe a goat is, you know, um, I don't know, uh, Syria. A whole nation, because they don't like Israel. Somebody might suggest that. I wouldn't suggest that. I would say that God takes all the nations and he extracts the believing individuals from all those nations. Some in Syria were friendly to the Jews. Some in Syria will not be friendly to the Jews. Some of the United States will be friendly to the Jews. Some in the United States at that time will not be friendly to the Jews and and concerned for them. And so... This judgment is of individuals among the Gentiles who have been friendly or unfriendly, we could say, toward the Jews. The the favor they show toward the Jewish nation is a demonstration of their faith and of true salvation. What happened with this passage in 1990, whatever it was, was basically 
you have to do these things if you're going to be uh, a sheep. And if you do these things, then you're a goat. And it gets awfully confused as far as, is this work salvation or is this not? No, it's not work salvation because salvation is never by works, but salvation does manifest itself in your works. So a Christian person today is going to be kind toward all. He's certainly going to be kind toward the Jewish people as God's chosen ones nationally, and he's not going to treat them like trash or blame them for all the world's problems or be anti-Semitic like so many people are today and have been over the ages. And that's an evidence of our salvation. Similarly, salvation will give forth evidence like that during the tribulation time. Um, So uh, that's the sheep, that's the goats. Um, I, I am very clear with this, that this passage does not speak of a general judgment of all humanity of all time. So sometimes people take this judgment and they basically make it like the great white throne judgment in Revelation 11, and they ignore the uh, judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and they basically say, look, the end of the world is going to come, we're all going to die, or when the Lord returns, we'll be there, and he'll resurrect everybody, and we'll all stand before him, and then we're going to find out where we end up. And if we did good, then we'll we'll go to heaven. And if we did bad, then we'll go to hell. Wrong doctrine. There is not one general resurrection and judgment because we know there's the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. We know there's the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. There's a judgment of living Jews at the end of the tribulation, Ezekiel 20, 33 to 38. And then there's this judgment. So there are at least four that we know of in their circumstances are all different. So they have to be different judgments. Um, the Jews are not the subjects of this judgment in Matthew 25. The judgment is of the nations, the goyim. It contrasts them with the least of these, my brothers, which naturally seems to refer to Jesus' Jewish brethren. Um, and, you know, some people might object, well, why aren't the Jews judged? You know, what, did they get a pass? No, 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 no. Have you read Ezekiel 20 lately? Well, I didn't know Ezekiel 20 talked about a judgment. Well, increase your biblical literacy then. Go to Ezekiel 20 and see that God tells the Jews, I'm going to gather you out of all the nations. I'm going to make you pass under the rod as a shepherd does, and I'm going to sort out the rebels from the faithful. Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. You know what's going to happen. Similar kind of thing that happens here. The rebels will be purged. They will not be welcomed in to his kingdom. They will be evaluated, but in a different setting than this one. Similar time, it'll be around a similar kind of time, but it's going to be a different kind or act of judgment. Um, Another correction to our thinking is your salvation is not determined by works or properly carrying out social justice or benevolence. See, uh, evangelicals love to take this and say, see, you've got to have your soup kitchen. You've got to, you know, uh, do these things to uh, be saved, to, to uh, really express the gospel in this age. Not so, not to be saved. You will naturally do that in different ways, but you will not 
be saved by doing these good works. Works demonstrate the reality of salvation, but being friendly to a Jewish person is not a super meritorious work that causes somebody to be saved or immediately obligates God to uh, ignore your sin. In other words, being a helper on the Underground Railroad or being an Oscar Schindler does not merit eternal salvation. As good as those works were, you're not going to hear me downplay those works and say they were bad. They were great. But if we believe that salvation does not come by works, we have to be consistent and say it does not come by works. Even tremendously good works like helping Jewish people stay alive during the Holocaust. Each era has its own issues of faithfulness, those issues which particularly test our faithfulness. In our day, there are such issues. When I first wrote this illustration, I did it back in 2020. In our day, will you continue to gather for worship despite the risks of a virus? That's an issue of faithfulness today. Will you open your mouth for Christ when it's politically not expedient to do so? Will you proclaim the need for repentance in an era when sin is called morality and morality is called sin? The character traits uh, recommended and, and, are, and condemned here are, remind us of similar traits that the Lord wants us to commend or condemn in the present age. So even though this is for a future era, it has application to us. Uh, the passage also, just as a corrective here, final thought, does not encourage us to treat Israel with kid gloves. It's not like we say, oh boy, I better not do anything, say anything amiss about the nation of Israel. Look, you don't have to give them a pass when they act improperly. You don't, though, also need to be dismissive toward them, nor to be against them just because the rest of the world is. You just be who God wants you to be. You be righteous. If they do something wrong, you call out the wrong. If they do something fine and good and all, admit it and then go on from there. But there's no excuse for us to think, you know, either we need to be against them because, you know, they are the nation that, that, uh, that killed the Christ, or we need to be for them because they're God's chosen people and just kind of be blind in either direction about it. That's not how we think. We, we think a little deeper than that. So don't be deceived. Don't be troubled. Be ready. Be faithful. Serve the master as he has directed us. Be prepared for a potentially long delay and be good stewards with what God has given to you. Let us be faithful to Christ until he comes. And thus ends the reading of uh, Matthew 25. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you again that we could study the word. It's time for us to move on to uh, another portion of scripture in 26 and following and the sad events that occurred there, but also uh, the great events in the sense that they provide our eternal redemption. I pray, Lord, that we will be ready and that you help us understand what we've read here very carefully. And uh, Lord, in any wise in which we don't understand or, ha or I have misspoken, you correct us about that and help us to uh, just be uh, spot on with how we understand your word. Thank you, Lord, for it in Jesus' name. And Lord, I also want to say, would you bless your people? those watching online, those here in the church tonight and as we go our way in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, we give you uh, greetings in the name of the Lord and uh, trust that you'll be well. Good night to those here and online.
and uh, I think you'll find um, I think you'll find the notes online if you want to review those, and I hope you will. And uh, you can ask us any questions you want also afterward. Amen. Good night.